You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Joseph Cummins, author of Anything for a Vote, Dirty Tricks, Cheap Shots, and October Surprises in the U.S. Presidential Campaigns, published by Cork Books. Joe is the author of numerous works of popular history, and Anything for a Vote has been featured in the national media, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, CBS, Fox News, and NPR. Joe writes regularly for Politico about the current campaign, and he's done lecture tours of universities, including University of Massachusetts, Virginia Tech, University of Idaho, and Auburn University. He lives with his wife and daughter in Maplewood, New Jersey, and teaches at Hudson Community College in Jersey City. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Anna. Tell me something. Why did you write the book? I wrote the book because I got sick and tired of hearing pundits saying for the last 10 years, 20 years, that American elections are getting worse and worse, dirtier and dirtier. And I thought, is that, that's interesting, but is it true? So I went back from 1789 all the way to 2012, which is the period the book covers, and I discovered that not only are elections not getting dirtier, but in fact they're even not as bad as they were in the 19th century. That, that is surprising. So give us just one example of something that you consider worse than what everyone's seen in this particular election. Well, for instance, even looking at the election of 1800, which was only the fourth election in our history, uh, yet it was absolutely one of the nastiest. For instance, uh, Thomas, recently I saw uh, someone do an op-ed piece in the New York Times where he was harkening back to the days of Thomas Jefferson and saying that, uh, wouldn't it be great if this founding father were back to lead us through a sane and intelligent and civilized election, and yet Thomas Jefferson was the one that hired a nasty writer named James Callender in 1800 to assail John Adams as a hideous hermaphrodite, uh, to say that he was going to turn the country over to King George and reverse the effects of the American Revolution. And uh, in that, in those days, the Federalists, which was John Adams' party, gave back as good as they got, and they claimed that, um, that Thomas Jefferson was dead, which is, I think, one of the great election slurs of all time. If he's dead, he can't possibly run for president. So already in our fourth election, they were going at it tooth and nail, and it's gotten worse ever since, but it was much worse in the 19th century, where there were really no checks and balances on what people were doing. Right, and one of the things being that the news, the new, it was a factor that the news traveled so slowly that, mm-hmm. that you could sort of say something, and it, w- it would take forever for it to be countered, or, the, or for anybody Absolutely. to say, yeah, yeah. yeah. You could say that a candidate was dead, and you would have several weeks before you found out that that wasn't true. So, uh, and in doing your research, it, you've, you've cited that you feel that there are 10 different things that have been consistent, again, like you say, ever since the third or fourth election, and that, that people say about their opponents every single time. So I want to ask you to give us a few examples of those. Yes, I have, I have a list of the top, top 10 attack slurs in American presidential campaign history. And despite who it is, whether it's the Federalists or the Republicans or the Whigs or the Democratic Republicans or the Republicans and Democrats of today, these slurs have remained constant in American campaigning all the way through all all these many years. Um, One of them, for instance, is you're gay. 
Now, believe it or not, this was a slur that was used a good deal in the 19th century. Uh, James Buchanan was a favorite uh, target of this of this uh, attack slur. Uh, uh, Andrew Jackson called him Miss Nancy because he was supposedly gay and he lived with a roommate named William King who was a vice president under Franklin Pierce and uh, so they called uh, Buchanan Miss Nancy and uh, and King Miss Fancy. Um, they said a and lot of so very would, nasty things about him. They would do this where? How, how, would, how, would, how were these they exchanges would, given? They would spread rumors about him in handbills in, in the, and in yeah, newspapers the and there was some very couched language so unless you really knew what the code was, which is typically the way with uh, anti-gay slurs, you couldn't know what was able to pick up on but then sometimes they did to his face, like uh, Henry Clay, when Buchanan was in the Senate, would walk up to Buchanan and get right in his face and say, I wish I had a more ladylike manner of expressing myself, like you. Uh, this goes hand in hand with the fact that it's very difficult to be a bachelor yeah, and run for president consistently, in yep. the United States. Whether, whether you're Samuel Tilden, who was a bachelor, who was accused of being sexually promiscuous and having a sexually transmitted disease, whether you were Adley Stevenson, who was a divorced man, who was accused also of being a gay, a gay man, which wasn't true. Um, it's very difficult to be a bachelor and run for president in the United States. So, so what's another co uh, common deployment of uh, dirty tricks? Well, another one is that you're too smart, that uh, you're an egghead, yeah. that you're Eugene McCarthy, who writes poetry, that you're George McGovern, who yeah. reads books, that yeah. you're Barack Obama, who yeah. writes books as well, because people are a little bit worried that uh, possibly if you're kind of egghead smart, if you're intellectual smart, that you don't have enough real-world practical experience in order to address the issues that you're going to face as the president. So for as long as we can remember, people have wanted to have a beer with their president? Is they wanted to, exactly. They want to have a beer or a cup of grog with their president. Grog? What is that? Actually. Um, same thing? It's pretty much the same thing. But remember in the 19th century, grog was a very important part of getting people to vote for you. If you can throw a massive part with a huge oxen and <laughs> plenty of grog, you were going to go nowhere because you had to bribe people to get out there and, and, and march in the streets for you, which is and what they did in the 19th you century. You said remember that. I didn't know that, but uh, thank you for telling <laughs> for teaching me that. But it makes sense that... You're far too young to know that, Anna, but yes. <laughs> but, it, yeah. but the point being, getting out the vote was enormously important, as always. So, you know, that was a, a popular method to get out the vote. Well, and it was, yeah. and remember, in the 19th century, they had voter uh, voting rates as high as, uh, in some cases, 90% of eligible voters would actually vote in elections. And yeah. that was because they organized far better than we do today, and it was because they were really able to bribe people in a certain way to get out there and do it. Yeah, do you think of that as being you know, sort of more contemporary. You think of that as going back a uh, few decades, but to realize that it goes all the way back to, to the earlier days of, of oh, bribing people to get out the vote. And not only does it go all the way back, but they started them at a very young age. In the 19th century, the voting age was 21, but the average age of Americans was 18. And you were 12 or 13 years old, and you were involved with your local political club, and you got very involved. It was a, fa it was a favorite spectator sport almost yeah. in the 19th century. Yeah, that's an interesting fact yeah. too, that we don't we don't see 
that kind of involvement at, at that age at all, do we now? No, I think I think young people have other things they do with themselves besides that. I'm not talking in a blanket statement because right, some of them are, are, are politically minded. Um, I also think that our media has distanced us from candidates and from mass rallies. Mm. Um, unlike in the 19th century when people were very close, they got to be face-to-face with their candidate. Uh, some people could even walk into the White House in those days right, and right, right. talk to the president. Right. So. so you feel that that's a better way to get to know the candidate is to go, e- even in yeah. one of these bigger rallies, where, where nowadays... They're just doing that canned speech. Was it the same in the earlier days? Were they just giving their same speech, or were they accepting more input from the crowd? Well, no. See, the thing was, in the earlier days, the candidates didn't show their faces at any big rallies or any big political events at all. But how was that getting closer to them? Well, because they would, quote-unquote, stand for election. All right, so they would stand back, but they would let their surrogates talk for them. So what you had, in a sense, was a kind of... I won't say mass psychosis, but a certain mass uh, consciousness voting for this, marching for this candidate. So people would get together, and they themselves would be loyal to the idea of this candidate. Wow. So you had hundreds of people doing um, torchlight marches through the streets, for instance. Or you had these massive grog and oxen parties, as I like to call it, where people would wow. feel really good about themselves. And then... When the candidate would finally become, let's say, get elected president, then finally he would appear, and it would be this oh. grand moment. It would be this wonderful I moment see. that this person had stepped out of the shadows that you had supported for so long, and and here he was. So I think it was wow. Kind That's of a an interesting aspect feeling. that I don't, I didn't know at all. Yeah, the people didn't. Know. The first candidate to really stand out there and run for election was William McKinley in 1896. And William Jennings Bryan was the first one to do whistle-stop tours. McKinley yeah. made dignified appearances on his front porch. But actually, yeah. William Jennings Bryan went all over the country by train. By train. Now, tell us about your research process. Well, my research process basically begins with, I, I research anything that I'm really interested in. And I've always loved American presidential elections. I was the kind of kid who could, you know, recite the names of all the U.S. presidents when I was a kid. And, uh, Whenever I find a little tidbit that I'm interested, I go as far as I can to try to find it. So I, I've gone to the Library of Congress yeah. numerous times in writing anything for a vote. I've read something like 50 or 60 histories and biographies of, uh-huh. of the presidential campaigns over the years. And I found out, actually, especially at the time that I was writing this book, that no one had actually written about this particular aspect it doesn't seem of so. things. Yeah. Not in a focused way, which right. is what I've done. And one of the interesting things about, I think, Dirty Tricks is the fact that it's a psychological truism. It's been proven over and over again that uh, negativity is is far more interesting to people. It draws people in much more than positivity. Despite the fact that many people don't think that or many people won't admit to that, it's actually quite true. So you can have a choice of saying that Rutherford B. Hayes, who ran for president in the dirtiest American election in American history in, in 1876, was a Civil War hero, he was a staunch Presbyterian, he was married to a woman who was so upstanding, her name was Lemonade Lucy, which was her nickname because she hated uh, drinking, or which is true, or you could say that he stole money from the Union deserters he was about to have executed, and that he also got drunk and shot his mother one night. Now, that isn't true, but which is more interesting? Yeah, to which you're going to remember more yeah. and talk about. And that's more. the whole point of Dirty Tricks. So you go back to biographies. You go. Did you go to back to a lot of um, older newspaper accounts? I went back to older newspaper yeah. accounts. 
I love going back, especially to the uh, older uh, cartoons of the 19th oh, century. Yeah. Not only Thomas Nast, but even well before him, back into the early part of the 19th century. You can learn a lot by these elaborate sort of Rube Goldberg cartoons that people did about the candidates they, they hated especially, but also those that they loved. And many of those are, are reprinted in the book, correct? Yes, many of them yeah. are reprinted in the book. There's also original artwork yeah. in the book. And I would encourage anyone to go online. They're in the Library of Congress as well, they have a number of the old cartoons from the 19th oh, century. Really, yeah. and they're really interesting, and they're fun once you know a little bit about the, the elections. So you do all your research. You decided to obviously do it in, in chronological order. I, I yes. always talk about actually putting the book together. And I one of the questions that I ask, and I'm wondering if it's similar when you're writing an, a, a narrative nonfiction like this, who who is your first reader? Who do you give your pages to first when you're in the process? In this particular case, I have a, a great editor named Jason Rakulak at Quirk Books, and he's the first one I, I showed the book to. Yeah. And when you would exchange pages, like what kind of what kind of input would you get with a book like this? Well, with Jason, he would. Uh, this book was originally a longer by a third. So the yeah. best thing that Jason did for me is he cut Isn't it. it That's very hard for me. Very hard. <laughs> I think every uh, single yes. one of them is always longer by a third. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. You have to have an editor who is willing to cut because every bit of it's fascinating to me, but it wasn't to Jason, and I trust him, and so he. He yeah, cut so it, it, was for a, me. it was a lot of cutting. It was a lot, a lot of refining, of and then a lot of fact checking too, because this book is full of facts. And you know? going back to it, it's really beautifully designed. It's a, it it's not yeah. just a textbook. It's it's got yeah. art and design throughout, which is which is interesting. And so actually, I think it's really appealing to younger readers as much as adults. Oh, it totally yeah. is. I've spoken at, at high schools. I speak yeah. at a lot of colleges, yeah. and I speak to adults as well. And everybody seems to really enjoy it. And I think especially some of the younger readers haven't heard this side of the history. They haven't quite understood what American electioneering has been like from the very beginning. And I think that's the kind of history that I hope to provide for them with the I book. Think that point is lost on all of us, frankly. Maybe so. I think that, yeah. you know, I think we're all kind of, oh, I mean, unless you really have read those those earlier history pieces. And I, I also think that we're all, particularly this year, sort of craving some reassurance that this, that the world is, is not gone completely haywire given the tenor of this election. Do you get that question? When you're speaking this year, do you get that a lot? Do you get I do. You do, right? I, I get that a lot, asks yeah. you. And people will say to me, after they've heard my talk or after they've read my book, they say the same thing. They say, well, in some ways it's weird that I should be so reassured that we've always been such dirty political players, but I am reassured by that, that what we're seeing with Donald Trump who I believe is a figure straight out of the 19th century, which is why I'm calling this the greatest 19th century election the 21st century has ever known. Okay. But we are reassured that he has appeared throughout history. Yeah. And this type of nastiness, and some of it is pretty nasty, has appeared throughout history. I mean, I, I had to laugh earlier this year when, when, when the former Speaker of the House, John Boehner, called Donald Trump, uh, or, or called Ted Cruz, uh, quote-unquote, Lucifer in the flesh. And I thought, okay, here comes the satanic card. We haven't yeah, heard the satanic card yeah. for 50 or 60 so, years, you know, and here it is. So do you, is that how you, do you get up every morning and read the paper and go, check, check, check? check. I do. Okay, that's 1896, that's <laughs> 1870s. Oh, 1912 is coming up with the convention, so yes. But, um, and I, this isn't the focus of your book, but knowing what you know about other countries' elections, I mean, do you think this benefits us? I mean, how is, how is this a good thing that this is the way we do it? Well, I will say it, it may not be a good thing 
in, in absolute terms. I will say that we are the longest lived only presidential system to have survived in history, so maybe there's something to that. I think except for certain, except for voter disenfranchisement, which yeah. we saw a lot of in the 19th century, and we're still seeing a little bit of today with voter ID laws. So you it, think only a little. Like, I think that's outrageous, but in your perspective, the voter ID laws... In my perspective, yeah, yeah, yes, really. compared to what was happening in, in, in the old days when, for instance, going back once again to the election of 1876, where the Republicans drove blacks in the South to the polls at the gunpoint, the Democrats kept them away at gunpoint, in some yeah. cases lynched them. And then, of course, we know all about the the onerous uh, voter ID laws of the 19th century. So I don't think they're quite as bad today, though it is a trend. It is a trend definitely to, to watch out for. Uh, but so I, I basically think uh, that things have gotten somewhat better today, but we can be reassured that even Donald Trump and even what's happening in this current election is still part and parcel of our tradition of American politics. We're going to end it with that word of comfort. Good. And, Good. and I appreciate it very much. The book, again, is Anything for a Vote, Dirty Tricks, Cheap Shots, and October Surprises in the U.S. Presidential Campaigns, written by Joe Cummins, and available wherever print books, e-books, and audiobooks are sold. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you, Anna. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi. And this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.